Amen. Well, how strong is your faith? That's the question that's uh, before us this morning. In fact, that's, that's really been the question that's before us for this whole study of Hebrews. We've been uh, 10 chapters now. We come to the famous uh, chapter 11, and what we're asking and what the writer was asking his original audience and what uh, the Holy Spirit uh, inspiration for us today uh, is still asking in the pages of Scripture is how strong is your faith? A, a Christian businessman had to travel to a small town for a meeting uh, with a potential client, and he invited his wife, who was also a believer, to come with him. And, and, and she was really excited about the trip, you know, a chance to get away with just the two of them. And yeah, it was a business trip, but it, it's kind of nice to be flown in and, you know, sort of uh, treated like VIPs and, and so forth. And so as they were planning for the trip, her husband happened to mention that the company was flying him to town in a small, private, twin-engine prop plane. Well, that really made her uncomfortable, and, and she said, you know, honey, I've decided not to go. What? Why not? Why? Come on, this is going to be great. What's the, what's the big deal? We're going to have a great time. And she goes, honey, I, I'm just not going to go on that little bitty prop plane. So his husband put his arm around her and he said, you know, honey, your faith is just too small. And she fired back at him, uh, no, dear, the plane is too small. <laughs> but uh, he really wanted his wife to go with him, so he, he canceled the private plane and he booked a flight on a major airline. And uh, boy, she was excited and she was so thankful. And as she put it, you know, she changed her mind because her faith grew and the size of the plane grew. So here's the point. The object of our faith determines how much faith we decide to have. The object of our faith determines how much faith we decide to have. See, faith is not just some willpower that we conjure up. Faith is all about its object. It's all about its object. You know, when you got saved, if you're here today and you know the Lord, it's because faith met the right object. People can and do believe many things in life, and often they think that what they believe in might get them into heaven. But according to the authority of God's Word, there's only one thing that, when believed, brings eternal life, and that's the gospel. That's when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for your sins, to pay your personal penalty for sin, and is the only hope for eternal salvation. When you trust in Him and Him alone, at that moment, you're saved. It was the object of your faith that saved you, not how you believed, but the object. And yet, as believers, and as we've been talking about now for, for several months, the same God who saved us through the shed blood of His Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ, is right there with us. And yet, even though we trusted Him with the most important thing you could ever entrust to someone, and that is your eternal destiny, when the trials of life come up, we're so quick to just be afraid and doubt and wonder. But it's the same God. So I repeat, how strong is your faith? And... To answer that question, you have to know where the object of your faith lies. And that, in essence, is what Hebrews has been all about. The author, from start to finish, is challenging his readers and us, by extension, to stay focused on Jesus Christ. 
to set our minds on Him, to look to Him, the author and finisher of our faith. We're going to get to that famous chapter, which really sort of serves as a culmination here in a couple of weeks. So we're kind of rounding the corner and heading into the home stretch in this journey through Hebrews. And, and, and today we start with a look at one of the most beloved chapters in Hebrews, and, and for many, maybe even one of the most beloved chapters in the New Testament. And that is Hebrews chapter 11. In this rich chapter, the author is going to, first of all, define that quality which he's been challenging us to exhibit throughout the first ten chapters, and that is faith. He's going to define it. And then after defining it, he's going to proceed to give example after example of heroes of the faith, which he hopes will serve as an inspiration to trust God no matter what. So our series that we started many months ago is Unshakable Faith, Trusting God in uh, Trying Times. And last week we finished up chapter 10 with a look at the fourth of five warning passages. And we called it Believers in the Hands of an Angry God. If you have not watched or listened to that podcast, let me encourage you to go back and and do that. In fact, you really need to to get the flow of thought to, to stay current with all of these as we kind of work our way systematically through this book. But last week was pretty heavy. It was a challenge. It was the most dire warning that he's given his readers. And I feel like it sort of was a bookend to a section uh, that, that he, as you outlined the book, that he'd been building up to. And now he's going to sort of step back and come at it from yet another angle, still challenging us Uh, to believe, to keep trusting the Lord, to remember that God's got this no matter what our temporal circumstances may be, God's in charge. So turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11, and I'm going to sort of split this into two parts. We'll look at part two next week. Um, I mean, in in truth, we could spend a whole week on every verse in Hebrews chapter 11, and, and some uh, people tend to do that, but I'm more of a big picture guy, and I want to kind of make sure we don't lose the forest for the trees as we work our way through uh, books of the Bible. And I think clearly Hebrews 11 is all about unwavering faith. So I want us to begin answering that question this week, and we'll continue to answer that question with part two uh, next week. And um, and. The question is, what is un- unwavering faith? So I'm going to give you ultimately 10 things that I've come up with. Anytime I split a message into part one and two, it's typically because I started out just sort of outlining it and putting it together, and it just got too long, and I thought, well, I can't fit this all in one, so we'll split it into two. So I've got ultimately 10 characteristics of an unwavering faith that we can glean from the examples in this hall of faith, as it's often called, in Hebrews chapter 11. But I want to give you five of them this morning. And the first one is this, unwavering faith believes God's promises about the future. It believes God's promises about the future. Honestly, that's what we tend to naturally think of when we think about faith. It's, it tends to be forward-looking. Faith is the, the confidence that something in the future will happen just as God revealed uh, that it will. And the first step, honestly, to abandoning the faith which was the danger he talked about last week, is to abandon the authority of God's Word and to quit studying future things. You know, I believe there's a correlation today 
between the absolute dearth of interest in future things, end times, Bible prophecy, uh, what I call the 84 percenters, you've heard me refer to that because one-third of the Bible is end times pro it's prophecy, half of that has not been fulfilled. That means one-sixth of the Bible is unfulfilled prophecy, and those who have no interest in that don't study it and think it's crazy to study it are really only studying 84 percent of the Bible. And I think there's a correlation between that, that you know, concept, that mentality, and the, you know, apostasy in the church today. The reason so many people are just sort of not walking with the Lord, not going to church, not, not really fellowshipping with other believers. They've sort of lost sight and, and haven't really contemplated God's future promises uh, in a while. Unwavering faith has a deep reverence for the authority, the inspiration, the inerrancy of Scripture and understands that God's Word will come true precisely as He said it will. So he starts out in verse 1 by defining faith. Now, faith is. Now, it would be hard to overstate the importance of, of, this, of this verse, and, and you've, I'm sure, heard it talked about quite a bit. Uh, to the extent that faith is so central to both our justification, coming to know the Lord for the first time and being declared righteous because of our faith in Him, and our sanctification, growing in our faith and walking with the Lord and being gradually set, up, set apart in Christ-likeness, uh, this verse really jumps off the page. Because it's the only place where you know, the, the, the epistles actually define what we mean by faith. And let's look at the first part of it. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Now, I'm reading, as you know, from the New King James, but the key word here is that word substance. That's the way the New King James uh, uh, translates this uh, word. It's the Greek word hypostasis. If you look it up in a lexicon, it just means confidence, assurance, conviction, Hypostasis is used five times in the New Testament, and three of them are in Hebrews. It seems to be a, an important word to him, maybe not just based on only three usages in a fairly lengthy letter, but because of where they're spaced. He, he, he starts out by using it right out of the chute in chapter 1, comes back to it in chapter 3, we're going to look at that in a second, and then of course here in his summary chapter of all that he's been talking about. Remember the big picture, his challenge is, Keep trusting Christ. Don't abandon the faith. Those late 60s A.D. Christian Jews, those Jews who'd been converted to Christianity by faith in Christ, because of persecution were contemplating abandoning the faith, kind of disassociating with the way and the weekly assembly, and instead going back to Judaism, which was still a safe haven, their comfort zone under the Roman rule. And so he's challenging them that Jesus Christ that saved you, is worthy of your continued trust. Keep following Him. Stick with Him. Uh, no matter what trials you may face here, the rewards and blessings down the road far outweigh any short-term pain and suffering that you might have to face in the temporal world. So confidence, assurance. So before we kind of get back to verse 1, let's sort of take a look at a couple of other places where the writer uses this word. He uses it in... Chapter 3, remember he said, we have become partakers. Now, don't get thrown by that English translation. He's not saying we've become Christians. A partaker there means uh, someone who participates with, uh, in Hebrews, it's like a co-reigner, someone who's going to experience particular blessings in the kingdom someday. 
Um, as we've said, the whole point of Hebrews is to get them to point, to look forward at the coming kingdom someday. I'll mention that again here in a second. But he's saying one way you know that you're going to be able to participate with Christ in special blessings in the kingdom is if we hold fast to our confidence. That's that word hypostasis, and it's actually translated confidence in the New King James uh, in this verse. The other place that it's used, he actually starts out right in the beginning uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, and I don't have the first couple of verses, or I mean, in, yeah, in chapter 1, I don't have the first couple of verses on the screen, but if you remember, he jumps right in with God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, notice the forward-looking there, uh, through whom he also made the worlds. And then he says in verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Now, don't ask me why, but the New King James chooses to translate this word hypostasis, the third time it's used in this letter, as person here. It means confidence, assurance. Um, in our text this morning, it's, it's translated substance. But I, what I think the writer is doing here, right out of the chute, again, the Bible wasn't written in English. His original audience would have understood this a little more clearly, perhaps, than, than we do as we study it in the original language. But he's reminding us that Jesus Christ is the express image of God's confidence. Indeed, Christ is the ultimate example of confidence and, and faith, as we're going to see in chapter 12. He's the author and finisher of our faith. He's the express image of of God. There can be no doubt when you look at Jesus, you're looking at God. The confidence, right? So if you go back to our text, the New American Standard, I think, is actually a little more helpful in its translation here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. There's one of those lexical meanings confidence, assurance, conviction. So the reference here is to the confidence or assurance that we have in our future desired reality. Those Christians, like the unbelieving Jews of the first century, wanted the kingdom to come. They wanted the long-awaited kingdom that the prophets of old had talked about to come. They wanted the Messiah, the ultimate seed of David, to come and, and take the throne. That's the reason John the Baptist and Jesus both began their ministries by announcing the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Of course, they didn't understand the Old Testament passages that, that plainly said that, that suffering and sacrifice must come before crowning and honor. They didn't understand that the cross came before the crown. They didn't understand what Isaiah meant by his suffering servant passages. They didn't understand what Daniel meant when he said the Messiah is going to be cut off. Jesus himself had told them repeatedly the closer he got to Jerusalem for that final visit in Passion Week, he became more and more explicit. You know, the Son of Man is going to suffer many things. He's going to be put, but he'll rise again. He'll rise again. But yet they still missed it. And they crowned him with thorns instead of uh, receiving him as their Savior. And so these Christian Jews that the writer of Hebrews is talking to come out of that same mentality. We've lost that after 2,000 years. Satan has really confused people, and people really don't think much about the future kingdom anymore. We've become convinced that life is all about the here and the now. 
It's about living your best life now, finding your purpose now, doing the best you can now, being content and happy and not lonely now. But no, God is working out His plan, as we just talked about in our Bible study hour this morning, to usher in that long-awaited kingdom. 16% of the Bible hasn't been fulfilled yet. And the Bible is coming full circle in human history to a, a pre-fall Edenic state in the perfect kingdom where the King of kings and Lord of lords reigns in perfect peace and righteousness with a rod of iron and in, in perfect justice. And that should be a source of hope. And that's the, the he, writer of Hebrews a teaching. Now, I don't think the writer of Hebrews, who I tend to think was Paul, but as we talked about some time ago, we can't be dogmatic about that. I don't think he really thought that it was going to be 2,000 more years in God's divine design of this church age. Uh, the, the rapture has been imminent from the beginning, and it's just as imminent today. But it was perhaps a little easier for that original audience to be challenged to think to, about the kingdom uh, than it is for us because hope has begun to wane after 2,000 years. What he's saying is faith, the very essence of it, is the assurance of something you hope for. It's looking beyond your present trials and difficult circumstances to the hope of the kingdom that lies ahead. And that's not always easy for us to do. And some people are walking through much more difficult trials than others. It's always relative, by the way. You know, that's why Proverbs says, The heart knows its own bitterness, and a stranger doesn't share its joy. You, know, you may think, Oh, man, this is the worst thing I could ever imagine. Nobody can understand what I'm going through. And yet, if you look hard enough, you'll find somebody that's, that's going through something harder. But the point is, all of our trials pale, as Paul said in Romans 8, in comparison to the incredible glory that awaits us someday. The whole context of the remainder of this chapter indicates that this desired reality of faith, the object of it is the promises of God. Each person listed in this famous hall of faith, as we call it, faced unique circumstances in which he or she was called upon to have confidence in God in spite of their circumstances. And remember, I, we went back to chapter 1 a second ago, but I, I made a passing reference to the author's explicit statement that he's, the whole point of his letter is to point toward the future kingdom. Remember what he said in chapter 2. God has not put the world to come of which we speak. People miss this verse, which is right at the beginning of the letter, and sets the tone for the whole letter. He's not talking about some nebulous, spiritualized, metaphorical kingdom here and now. He's talking about the world to come, the literal earthly kingdom when Christ will take the throne. If we look at the NIV in verse 1, it says, Now faith is being sure of what we hope for. Again, the NIV is fairly paraphrastic in general, but this is a good translation of hypostasis, to be sure of something, the assurance of something. Paul put it this way in 2 Timothy chapter 1. For this reason, this is the last letter he wrote, by the way, literally just a short while before he was martyred. Some scholars suggest it might have only been days, but at the most it was a few weeks or a month or two. And writing to Timothy, he says, For this reason I also suffer these things. I and mean, he was about to be martyred. 
Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded. My faith is strong. I'm not looking at this outward trial that I'm facing. I know that he is able to keep what I've committed to him until that day. We've got to keep our eyes on that day, the future. The old, I mean, do you realize that our life on earth in this temporal realm is just a speck, not even a speck, on the timeline of eternity? And that's why once you come to faith in Christ and become born again and a child of God, our citizenship is in heaven. Paul says, from where we, e from where we eagerly wait our Savior. It's not about the here and the now, it's about the then and there. Now, we have a job to do in the here and now. The Bible gives us a lot of practical teaching and admonition about how to live out our days in this life. We ought to do all that we do for the glory of God. We're to be good examples. We're to obviously fulfill the Great Commission. That's our whole purpose as a church is to be here in the church age to share Christ with others. And there are principles and things that, that, that guide us and help us in our day-to-day -day living. But ultimately, that's not what it's about. Paul suffered imprisonment and the discomforts that came with it because he preached the gospel. And he wasn't ashamed of that. But nevertheless, his confidence was in the, the, the promises of God. And he understood and knew that God was faithful and would protect him in his way and in his time. So unwavering faith believes God's promises about the future. But verse 1 goes on to remind us that unwavering faith beholds the invisible spiritual realities of life. It beholds the invisible spiritual realities of life. So one way to bolster your faith is to keep your mind set on spiritual things. Now, we struggle with that, uh, and there's a lot of reasons for that. I, I won't take the time to sort of try to delineate some of those, but just the culture in which we live and just the history of philosophy and the history of thinking has sort of led us to become overly obsessed with the here and the now with the material. And so consequently, I think we miss a lot of spiritual things. I listened to an interview this week by a guy named Rocky Elmore. I don't know if he's a believer or not. Uh, I tend to listen to a lot of podcasts about a lot of interesting topics, but he's a retired Border Patrol agent, worked in the San mountains outside of San Diego on the border with Mexico, and he was telling some fascinating stories about some of his uh, experiences. And um, one of the ones that he talked about, and it wasn't all that he talked about, but one section of his book that he was elaborating on, was several incidents where he or one of his colleagues, they tended to work in pairs, uh, and then they would have a spotter who would be at a designated spot with a night vision or heat sensing device to where they could see these uh, you know, illegal immigrants coming over and, and often in, in group. And, and uh, he said, we didn't think ill of them. We didn't treat them. We didn't have any opinion about them. We weren't, it wasn't personal. He said, we were just like police officers pulling someone over for speeding. You know, you break the law, I'm probably going to give you a ticket. Uh, it's our job, right? And, but he understood that a lot of people try to come over illegally for all kinds of reasons that might tug at our heartstrings, but this was my job. And so, but he told about a story one time where there was, he and his partner had, had heard a noise, but couldn't see anything. And it was a very bright moonlit light, certainly bright enough to see some things. 
but they both heard it. They both looked at each other, couldn't figure out what it was. They radioed their spotter, who was up on the other side of the lake uh, where they were expecting these folks to come across, and there was another team of two over there. The spotter wouldn't respond to, his, to their radio. Um, meanwhile, what they didn't know, and they found out later when they got back to the uh, camp, was that spotter had his spot, spotter trained on those other two agents because right behind them, within 10 feet, was a massive heat-sensing figure. He couldn't see exactly what it was with this night vision technology, but it was about nine feet tall, bipedal, and it was like bearing down on these two agents. And he was having a dialogue with them on the radio about, hey, look behind you. They're looking at their nothing, nothing. They can't see a thing no matter where they look. And he just finally said, I'm just telling you, you need to get out of there. Well, they thought there must have been a mountain lion or something that they couldn't see, but that he could see with his night vision. And they got out. And when he described it later, he said they all thought he was crazy. Now, I don't know what to make of that. I'm not here to interpret it. But I'm telling you, there is a spiritual unseen realm that we need to be aware of. And when we focus so much on the here and the now and life's daily struggles, we miss out on the fact that God is doing some amazing things. There's a cosmic struggle between good and evil. And this is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 6. And that's really what the second part of this verse says. Faith is not only the substance of things hoped for, it's the evidence of things not seen. Faith is the spiritual organ that enables us to perceive the invisible realities of life. See, life is about more than what we can see and feel and touch. To, you know, for, for the believer with unwavering faith, they sort of have trained themselves to think in terms of spiritual realities. They're asking questions like, okay, this is painful, this is confusing, I don't know why this is happening, but what's God doing here? How might God be using this? What could be happening in my life, in this experience, in the unseen realm? So again, the NIV puts the second half of the verse this way. Faith is being certain of what we do not see. You ever thought about that? You know, we're certain of what we see, or think we see. Sometimes looks can be deceiving. But are you certain of what you don't see? And this call to faith is a universal call. It's not just the writer of Hebrews or the book of Hebrews that is, you know, so eloquently and passionately now for 11, going on 11 chapters, challenging us to faith. It's the walk of the Christian life. It's the reason Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, we walk by faith and not by sight. See, the method of justification, faith alone and Christ alone, is the same as the method of sanctification. It's what Galatians is all about. You know, having begun in the Spirit, are you now trying to be made perfect, that is made mature, in the flesh? So, so many Christians have become conditioned, and I'm chief among them, uh, you know, to understand the gospel and believe the gospel and be saved. In my case, it was when I was six years old. And we understand that you have to believe in Jesus. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith in Christ. But then for some reason we sort of put our faith on the shelf and we try to live out our days based on what we can see and feel and touch. Walking by sight. That's not the Christian life. See, unwavering faith beholds the invisible spiritual realities of life. It walks in the, by faith, not in the flesh. 
So a believer with unwavering faith, strong faith, does battle with the spiritual forces of evil on a daily basis. I mean, you may not, you know, see demonic manifestations or something like that, which are very much real, but you, you recognize that there's an enemy, he comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and that only through the power of the Word of God are you going to be able to walk in the Spirit and withstand that. But most people go through life on autopilot, not even contemplating the invisible spiritual realities of life. Faith is the spiritual organ that enables us to perceive the invisible realities of life. So you want to know if you have unwavering faith? Have you ever seen the invisible? When's the last time you did? Number three, unwavering faith brings forth a good testimony. It brings forth a good testimony. So next, the writer appeals to the fame and the good testimony of the heroes from the Old Testament. I mean, these would all be significant people to these Jewish Christians in the first century. And essentially, he's asking them, why, why were these people so well respected? And he's hoping that they'll go, well, they had a pretty strong faith. <laughs> they didn't doubt the Lord. And he would be thinking, bingo. And that's what I'm trying to challenge you to do in the midst of this fiery trial. Verse 2 says, for by it, that's faith, the elders obtained a good testimony. In other words, that faith that he just defined is, is honorable, is seen through the testimony of these Old Testament heroes, and they were commended for it. See, unwavering faith is pleasant. It's attractive. It's, it makes others think highly of you. You know, one of, the, one of the most beautiful things that we can see is when you see another brother or sister in Christ going through from what our perspective appears to be horrific, and it is horrific, and yet they just have this confident glow about them where they're trusting God, and you're just thinking, I could never do that. Well, by the way, that's the grace of God, and when we walk through something like that, God gives us the grace to be able to handle it. But not when our faith is wavering and not when we're sort of having a pity party and woe is me and, you know, why me and how can this always happens to me, you know. But that's a beautiful thing. And you, you know what I'm talking about. You've seen it. And uh, it, when, you, when you see someone that you think this is just, I would be, I would be crushed. And yet, because of their faith, they're able to handle it. The great accomplishments for which all believers will be remembered, rewarded someday at the Bema, are all accomplished in faith. I don't have this on the screen, but when Paul introduces the notion of the judgment seat of Christ, which is when believers from the present church age will be rewarded, he clearly goes on to say, that's in 1 Corinthians 3, he goes on to say in chapter 4 that the basis for that reward is not what we did, but why we did it, the counsels of the heart, chapter 4, verse 1. So I really believe there will be many Christians who outwardly seem to have it all together. They do all the right things. They dot all their I's. They cross all their T's. They have perfect attendance pins down to the floor. You know, but they, they really never had a steadfast trust in the Lord day by day. It was all sort of a quid pro quo. It was a retributive concept of God. 
And they're saved. I mean, they've, I'm assuming for this illustration that there was a time when they truly believed the gospel and understood faith alone and Christ alone. But nevertheless, like so many of us, they begin to view God uh, through the lens of a quid pro quo. That as long as I do everything okay and don't step out of line, He's going to bless me. And if I, something bad's happening to me, it must be because I did something wrong. And so under that paradigm, a lot of Christians look like they've got it all together. And I think we're going to be surprised someday at who it is that really is it receives the most rewards. And it's going to be those whose faith brought forth a good testimony. See, we can demonstrate unwavering faith to others in a powerful way. That's the testimony you want to have. Unwavering faith influences children. Bosses can influence their employees with unwavering faith. Friends can influence other friends with unwavering faith. You want to be an example, you want to make an impression, trust God and let it be known that you're trusting God. And then number four, as we move into verse three, unwavering faith bears in mind God's power. Boy, I love this verse. It bears in mind God's power. See, faith is not just looking ahead at what lies ahead. It is also a way of viewing all life. It's accepting God's viewpoint as it's revealed in His Word. This is God's self-disclosure to mankind, His unveiling. He's telling us everything we need to know about Him. And as we look at God through history, the more we know God, the more we'll trust Him. And in particular, unwavering faith recognizes our God is a powerful God. Verse 3 talks about how by faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. See kind of how he's sort of building on this whole idea of seeing the invisible. He's saying, so almost sort of like, and oh, by the way, speaking of seeing the invisible, don't forget, our God is so powerful, he spoke the world into existence ex nihilo, out of nothing, Right? And we need to remember that. That will help embolden our faith. And unwavering faith bears this in mind, that God is powerful. And that's why, if I may digress, belief in a literal six-day creation is so crucial. If you don't believe the first five words of the Bible, why should you believe anything else? <laughs> See, we impugn the testimony of Scripture when we take what that eugenicist Darwin suggested millennia after God revealed it through the pen of Moses and says, no, 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 that's crazy. The earth is millions of years old. We all evolved from a wet rock. <laughs> and then Christians who were taught that in seventh grade biology go, oh, it must be true. My teacher said so. So then I'm going to take my seventh grade biology text and infuse it back on top of the Bible. And well, each day must be millions of years because everybody knows the world is millions of years old. That's not what God says. See, it impugns God's power and the integrity of God's Word. And it just sort of has always perturbed me when, when some Christians, and I don't mean to be judgmental because we've all been there, and it, it's a, maybe they've never studied this or been introduced uh, to it. But you know, they'll say that literal six-day creation isn't important. That, oh, we don't really know what it means. As long as you believe God created the earth, that doesn't really matter. No, it does matter. Words mean things. 
It's crucial. It cuts right to the heart of faith. Do you believe in God's creative power or not? And if you do, then that ought to embolden our faith. Because, boy, if He can create the universe and time, space, and matter with a word, and if He can redeem this old sinner from the penalty of sin through the shed blood of His Son and my Savior, I mean, what, what, what's too hard for Him, right? God's power. The writer of Hebrews has talked about God's power before. The Word of God is living and powerful, he said in chapter 4. In chapter 6, in that warning passage, he talked about how believers have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come. Remember, the same God who's powerful enough to create the world is powerful enough to fulfill His ultimate kingdom promise. Jude's doxology says, To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. When we've struggled in the midst of a trial or crisis, it's because we've forgotten who's in charge, right? And going back to Paul's last letter, again in 2 Timothy, one of the things he reminded young Timothy, his son in the faith, about was that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power. Because we serve a, God, a powerful God, and we have new life because of the power of the resurrection, as Paul talks about in Philippians 3. So unwavering faith bears in mind God's power. The next time you feel your faith wa wavering, just think about God's power as the creator of the universe. And then finally, in the next four verses, he gives us some examples that show us that unwavering faith behaves in a way that pleases God. It follows. It's a natural next step. If you have unwavering faith, of course, your behavior is going to be indicative of that. And this goes back to what we've looked at several times. And if, if you know, long, until the Lord comes back, you'll probably hear me sh or show, have me show you this several other times. It's a key paradigm for, uh, for understanding the Christian walk. And that's that no trust, obey model. Remember, we've talked about it. No trust, obey. You don't obey what you don't trust. And you don't trust what you don't know. And you don't know what you don't study. Right? But the more we study the Bible, the better we're going to get to know God. The more we get to know God, the more we're going to trust Him. And the more we trust Him, guess what? The more we're going to obey Him. It's pretty simple. That old hymn, trust and obey, for there's no other way. When Christians have an obedience problem and they're living in carnality or living in a backslidden state, it's not an obedience problem per se. It's a trust problem. Whatever is not of faith is sin. If they truly trusted the Lord day by day, they would believe His promises and follow His guidelines. And that's why studying the Word is so critical. Study to show ourselves approved of God, a workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the Word of truth. So the writer's going to give us some examples of that. He goes all the way back to Abel. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice. Remember, in the, you know, Abel and uh, Cain both brought a sacrifice, but Cain's was not acceptable. We talked about this in our Wednesday night study, and Abel's was. And we know that it was more acceptable to God because it was animal sacrifice, more valuable from the first fruits of his flock, whereas Cain brought a few vegetables, right? 
This is prefiguring ultimately the, the salvation through the blood, that without the shedding of blood there's no forgiveness. And it goes even back before that when God shed the blood of animals in the garden to provide coverings for Adam and Eve. But because Abel trusted God, he was able to behave in a better way. Uh, Enoch, you remember Enoch from Genesis 5. Enoch was taken away uh, by faith. Enoch was taken away so that he did not see death and was, found, and was not found because God had taken him. For before he was taken, he had this testimony, what? That he pleased God. Now, the writers already said their testimony is faith, by faith, by faith, but now he's connecting that faith directly with pleasing God. That's the point that he's making here with Abel and Enoch. And he's going to explicitly state that in the very next verse. Verse 6, he says, in fact, without faith it's impossible to please God. So you can legalistically, ritualistically, of your own volition and willpower, do moral things. But as Isaiah the prophet reminded us, our righteous acts are like filthy rags to a holy God. It has to, we have to be declared righteous positionally first by faith, just as Abraham was. And then that faith has to manifest itself by trusting God and doing what he says. In essence, anytime we don't do what God says, we're basically saying, I know what you said, God, but I just don't trust you. I'm going to go with myself on this one. It's a lack of faith, right? So you can't please God unless you're walking by faith. And God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And then he, one more, he uses Noah as an example. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear. See the internal reference there? What was it that motivated Noah to build the ark? Was it legalistic righteousness? Okay, I really don't want to do it, but I guess I'll do it. I got it. No, he was moved with a, a godly faith in, in the Lord and trusting reverently in, in him. And he prepared an ark for the saving of his household by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Someone sent me this quote from John Wesley this week. Now, one caveat, we, some of you may know John Wesley in his overall theology was ten, tended to be more works-based. In other words, he felt like he had to do good works to be saved, which is absolutely not the testimony of Scripture. But he was a great hymn writer and had a lot of great things uh, to say. And, and, and this just kind of struck me as I, was, as I got this and then was thinking about our message. Do all the good you can. Be all uh, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. And I love that. Especially if underlying it all, the motivating factor is faith. Trusting God. Trusting God. See, faith believes, I mean, behaves in a way that pleases God. It has as its primary motivation the goal of, of pleasing God. It doesn't act out of guilt. It doesn't act out of ritual. It doesn't act out of selfishness. Unwavering faith acts out of gratitude for what God has done for us, a steadfast belief in the desired reality of the future that He has promised, and therefore we want whatever we do to do all to the glory of God, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10. So that's uh, part one, five Five characteristics of unwavering faith. Believes God's promises about the future. Beholds the invisible spiritual realities of life. Brings forth a good testimony. Bears in mind God's promise. And behaves in a way that pleases God. So, 
how strong is your faith? That's, that's the takeaway. Is it faith in a, a twin-engine prop plane? Or is it bigger than that? Do you really understand the object of our faith? Are you trusting the same one who rescued you from the penalty of sin? The same one who spoke the world into creation? Are you trusting him right now in your walk, no matter what you may be facing? How strong is your faith? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for just this powerful passage and this powerful chapter. And we look forward to diving into more of it next week. And Lord, I pray that if there's one here today that doesn't know you, that the first step of faith would be trusting in your Son and our Savior as the only one who can bring eternal life and forgive sin. And Lord, for those who have placed their faith in Jesus and Him alone for salvation, I pray that you would just really help all of us to renew our real desire and heart passion to trust you. Help us to be reminded of what a good God you are, how faithful you are. You've been faithful in the past, you're being faithful now, and you will be faithful in the present. So Lord, strengthen our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.